Good evening. I'm Kate France. And I'm Tabby Tyler. Tonight we talk about teachable moments in historical shipbuilding. So grab a beverage. It's time for a night in. We are interrupting your regularly scheduled impeachment trial to distract you from the misery of our current democracy, to regale upon you stories of old times, stories about boats. Yes, back when grudges between countries were settled on the open seas, and not with suspicious phone calls or by personal attorneys. Now, the only reason we picked boats is because uh, Tabby, Tabby just got a boat. Tabby's husband got a boat. Tabby is eager to see that boat actually make it into the water. Which still means that both of you will be losing money mysteriously. Much like aid money that was missing for Ukraine for a period of time. Withheld. Sure felt missing to Ukraine. God, we're so salty. Much like the open ocean. Which is where this story takes place. Well, actually, my story takes place in a sea. The Baltic Sea. In the early 1600s, Sweden... Transition, guys. Now we're talking about Sweden. (laughs) I just realized now what that's going to sound like. Anyway, we're all in. In the early 1600s, Sweden was at the beginning of its age of greatness. It was under the rule of Gustavus Adolphus, who had ambitions to make Sweden the strongest military power in the Baltic Sea. Gustavus had been king of Sweden since the age of 16 and was credited for shaping Sweden into a great European power. He inherited a war from his father, a war with Poland-Lithuania, and fought in the Baltic against multiple naval threats, including the Polish Navy, as well as imperial forces that threatened to spread Catholicism into Denmark. Not Catholicism! Ideology. History's greatest threat. So several naval disasters had left the Swedish naval fleet in demand of more ships, and Gustavus Adolphus, military man that he was, saw this as an opportunity to commission a new kind of ship, a ship that would have a superior and intimidating armament, and the first of these ships would bear his family name, Vasa. Vasa was the family name thanks to Gustav I, who was a member of the Vasa noble family and first king of liberated Sweden. In 1521, he catalyzed the Swedish War of Liberation and freed Sweden from Danish hegemony, broke Sweden from the Kalmar Union, and solidified Sweden as a nation under its own rule. He also established a hereditary monarch and separated Sweden from the Roman Catholic Church. And get this, he left the Catholic Church at virtually the same time Henry VIII did in England. Wow, the Protestant Reformation was like the shot heard all over Europe, wasn't it? Yes. Gustav I, or Gustav Vasa, laid the groundwork necessary for Sweden to become a regional superpower, and the Vasa ship commissioned by his grandson Gustavus Adolphus in 1625 was destined to bring glory to the kingdom. Or so everyone thought. Except it didn't. No, in- instead it sank. Understatement. Instead it sank in the most embarrassing way possible. And the reason it sank has been hotly debated for centuries, but it ultimately came down to multiple failures of communication coupled with a limited understanding of theoretical shipbuilding principles. So, walk me through this one. Well, the first measure of incompetence was the fact that the plans for the ship had to be approved by the king. So once the shipbuilding was underway, 
no one dared question the king's orders, and the king desperately wanted the Vasa on the water, so in 1628, when the ship's stability was being tested for Vice Admiral Fleming, a flaw was noticed that no one dared bring up. What was the flaw? During the stability test, 30 men were tasked to run back and forth on the upper deck to get the ship rolling, but were told to stop after three trips for fear that the ship would capsize. No, no one said anything? No. Because to say something would upset the king. And how do you even begin to explain that the ship the king approved didn't seem stable, especially not when you can't explain why it wouldn't be? Shipbuilding science at the time was still in its nascent stages. We understand now that the ship had too high a center of gravity. The hull above the water line was too heavily built in relation to the amount of hull in the water. The weight of the hull above the water was due to a combination of factors, including the desire by the king for a two-level gun deck, the height of the ceiling between the floors, or the headroom, being unnecessarily tall. Don't you know your sailors must all suffer from hunches? Actually, they were all about 5'5". Five five. Oh. Hmm. And the deck beams and their supporting timbers were all overdimensioned and too closely spaced. All of this elevated the center of gravity, and the width of the ship was not enough to overcome this issue, nor was the ballast. Another severe problem was the fact that the ship was constructed using different units of measurement. Archaeologists who excavated the ship found rulers used by the workmen who built the ship, and two were calibrated in Swedish feet, which had 12 inches, while another two were calibrated in Amsterdam feet, which had 11 inches. This caused its mass to be distributed asymmetrically, with more mass distributed to the port side. <laughs> this, this, this is a mess of a ship. It's like a kid drew ship plans, and someone said, we're going to make this. It, so, so why were there both Dutch and Swedish rulers on the ship, though? Because the shipwright at the Stockholm shipyard was Dutch-born Henrik Hybertson. Sounds like someone's about to get hanged. Well, you're right about one thing. He was blamed for the Vasa sinking, yes. But when the ship sank, Master Henrik had already died. Convenient. Actually, it was. Henrik Ibertsen began construction on the ship in 1625, but fell ill, and in 1626, he handed off construction to fellow Dutch shipbuilder Henrik Jacobsen. Everyone was an Henrik. <laughs> they wouldn't have a Wilhelm or Sam, no. So anyway, Henrik Jacobsen supervised the completion of the ship, and on August 10th, 1628, she began her maiden voyage. She was a fantastic ship to look at, and as she sailed along the city of Stockholm, citizens were able to gaze upon her splendor. She was painted magnificently in the style of late medieval design, and each side of the beakhead was adorned with 20 figures, all Roman emperors, meant to signify the grandeur of the Vasa family and its equality among other powerful leaders. She was 226 feet long and stood 172 feet tall. The most magnificent were the 64 guns specially fitted to make her as intimidating as she was spectacular. All of the guns were out and on display. A salute was to be fired as the ship left Stockholm. People looked on and on, her sails propelling her forward into some approaching battle. Then a gust of wind caught her, and she heeled to the port side. The heavier side. Yes, but she righted herself again and continued to sail on. Then another gust of wind caught her sails, 
and she healed over more, but this time she healed too far and began to take on water through the open lower gun ports. The water filled in quickly and exceeded the ship's ability to right itself, and the Vasa sank in the harbor, just 390 feet from the shore. Oof, wow. And to add insult to injury, her mast was still sticking out of the water because the harbor was so shallow, so the next day they had to go cut them down. <laughs> so, so where was the king during all of this? The king was off fighting in Poland. It actually took over two weeks to tell him his pride and joy sank into the harbor. But when he found out he was spitting mad, he demanded that the guilty party be brought to justice. Crewmen and shipbuilders alike were interviewed as to why the ship sank. The crewmen were asked if they were sober, if they properly handled the sails, if the guns were secured correctly. The shipbuilders were asked why the ship was built so narrow, at which point Henrik Jacobson responded that he built the ship according to the plans that Henrik Hybertson had given to him, the same plans that were approved by the king. During the inquest, it also came out that the stability demonstration had failed. At this point, it was very clear that the only failure here was that of bureaucracy, and no one was found guilty, and the blame was very conveniently placed on Henrik Hybertson, who was already dead. Wow. Very convenient. <laughs> yes. The Vasa has since been salvaged and is on display in Stockholm at the Vasa Museum, and I must say, 10 out of 10 would go again. Well, your story is in stark contrast to mine, and the ship I'm going to talk about had about the same firepower as the Vasa, but did not sink and is still afloat today. You know, I totally forgot that war vessels are your thing. Oh, yes. I was around 11 years old when I started reading the Horatio Hornblower novels. The novels take place during the Napoleonic Wars, and I became completely infatuated with the Age of Sail and fascinated by the British Navy because they were absolutely legendary during this time period. No one could rival the British on the ocean. And I have to admit, I was super jealous that our ships of the day weren't quite as mythical as theirs. That is, until I discovered the USS Constitution. Absolutely the most legendary of American vessels, and one of the loves of my life. Husband and child, cats, supernatural, and the USS Constitution. Got it. Yep. Uh, the USS Constitution is the oldest serving naval vessel in the world. Built in 1797 and berthed in the Boston Harbor, she was a feat of incredible engineering and foresight. So, like I said, the British owned the seas, right? Right. Well, the French, Spanish, Dutch, and Portuguese weren't exactly complete slouches at the time either. Not to mention American merchants were being attacked by Barbary pirates left and right. So, the designer of the ship, Joshua Humphrey, came up with an idea. He knew the U.S. could neither afford the materials nor the manpower to build a fleet of ships that could stand up to the navies of Europe. So he designed the Constitution to be deep, long on keel, narrow, and mounted with 44 guns. But during wartime, she often carried more than 50 guns at a time. 60 acres of trees were used to build her. The design made the hull incredibly strong, so that ultimately, in any standoff, it might be outnumbered, but was still strong as hell and armed to the teeth, which gave it a fighting chance. Strong as hell. Armed to the teeth. America. Absolutely. But it isn't until the War of 1812 that we find out just how tough this American girl is. The War of 1812 was a war between the United States and Great Britain. 
and it was the result of Britain using its dominion over the seas to enforce a blockade against French trade with neutral parties through aggressive naval battles. They were also forcing American sailors into British service because they didn't want to waste their sailors on what was a minor part of the Napoleonic War. In addition, they were also participating in arming indigenous Americans against American pioneers on the frontier. The culmination of these transgressions led to Congress entering the War of 1812. Just after the Declaration of War was signed, under the command of Isaac Hull, the Constitution was attempting to join a squadron of American ships, and they thought they'd found them off the coast of New Jersey. But by the next day, they were able to determine that the ships were actually a British squadron of five ships of the line. Well, those are terrible odds. Oh, yeah. And it gets worse. At this point, within pursuit distance of a squadron of British frigates, the Constitution becomes becalmed. Becalmed meaning that there is no wind. And being that this is the age of sail, that means no running from the aforementioned five frigates? Exactly. So, Captain Hull does something really smart. He kedges the ship away from the British by using the longboats to tow the ship and then the kedge anchor to turn. Very Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, yes. They did that over and over again for 57 hours. The British saw what was happening and pursued the Constitution using similar methods. Talk about the French connection. What a bizarre chase scene. It's, it's more like speed two, actually. Really, really slow and on a boat. This was an arduous affair. Because remember all those guns and that incredibly thick hull? That made the Constitution heavy. And they eventually had to toss 2,300 gallons of fresh drinking water overboard in an attempt to make themselves faster. The British got close enough to fire at them, but never close enough to hit. And eventually, our girl escapes and gets back to Boston to resupply and take repairs. A couple days later, though, Hull commands our girl back out to sea, where she captures three British merchant vessels, until Hull hears about a British frigate down south and goes after it. The spotted frigate is the HMS Guerrier a 38-gun ship of the line originally built by the French but captured and recommissioned by the British. And Hull had decided she needed to go. Guerriere opened fire first, but did little damage. After a few exchanges of cannon fire between the ships that achieved nothing, Captain Hull has the Constitution turned for a broadside, or a nearly simultaneous firing of all the guns from one side of a ship. Then another broadside, then another, until the Guerriere loses its mizzenmast. The loss of the mizzenmast is devastating to the Guerriere, and with minimal remaining maneuvering ability, she collides with the Constitution, getting tangled in her rigging. The sea is rough, and boarding parties are trying to get to each other's vessels, while the Constitution continues firing broadsides, even while connected to the other ship and rotating counterclockwise in surging waves. When the two ships finally pull apart, the force of the Guerriere's bowsprit being removed from the Constitution's rigging sends shockwaves through the Guerriere, collapsing her mass. The Guerriere ends up a dismasted hulk of splintered lumber and torn canvas, too unmanageable to sail or capture. Almost a third of her crew are wounded or dead. Wow. 
This is why they make movies about this. I get it now. And the Constitution? Well, you could say she had great constitution. Mm -hmm. She was in incredible condition. Many of the Guerrero's shots had astonished both the British and American sailors by rebounding off the Constitution's hull without leaving any damage. An American sailor shouted, Huzzah! Her sides are made of iron! And the Constitution got the nickname Old Ironsides, which she's known as to this day. Because once again, she's still around. Yes. In 1835, she was appraised to see if she would be worth a refit. At the time, ships were only expected to last 10 to 15 years, and the Constitution was already 38, so she needed to get some work done. A hull lift, as it were. Hmm. The Boston Papers reported a rumor that the Constitution was set for scrap, which wasn't the case, but it set off a national outcry where the people demanded she be repaired since through her decades of service, she'd become something of a war hero herself. Isn't this when the Jackson's head debacle happened? <laughs> yeah, okay. So the shipyard, in honor of her new youthful look, commissions a new figurehead of President Jackson to be put under her bowsprit, which was incredibly controversial because as a conservative Democrat... Back then, they were what we now know as Republicans. He was super unpopular in Boston. The shipwrights received death threats. Bostonians challenged each other to sneak in and destroy or remove the figurehead. And finally, a man named Samuel Dewey took a bet that he could do it. He rode out to the Constitution under the cover of a thunderstorm and sawed off Jackson's head, which was then passed around to all the pubs and taverns of Boston until Dewey personally returned it to Secretary of the Navy Malin Dickerson, who kept it on his library shelf for many years. As someone married into a Bostonian family, does this surprise you at all? Not in the slightest. This ship, though, really is considered a national treasure. Oh, Absolutely. To the point where we've insisted on maintaining her not only as a functional vessel, but also an actual ship in our Navy for the last 185 years since her first refit as America's favorite ship. In 1900, she became a museum ship when, again, the country flipped its lid at the thought of destroying her. A congressman had suggested she be towed out and used by the Navy for target practice, and people were so incensed that groups went door-to-door -door collecting funds for her refit, and school children sent in pennies. She was then used as a training vessel for sailors and as a museum open to the public. So does she still sail? Yep. In 1991, Commander David Cashman had suggested to the Department of the Navy that the Constitution should sail to celebrate her 200th anniversary in 1997, rather than being towed for her voyage, which was pretty extraordinary since she hadn't gone farther than the harbor for a hundred years. It ultimately cost $12 million and the use of sophisticated imaging technologies to repair internal rot damage without integrating modern tech into the ship. But finally, she did, in fact, sail, and does so now once a year. That first sail must have been something. Right? Commander Mike Beck trained the crew for months using an 1819 sailing manual and was the first naval commander to use the order set sail, literally, in almost 100 years since the Independence and the Santee were cut from service. I, I can't imagine what that crew must have felt. It must have been just the time of their lives as historians and sailors. I mean, they dressed in the uniforms of the time, and 
they got to experience actual sailing. Mm. Most sailors who join the U.S. Navy don't ever actually sail a boat in mm. their careers. It must have been just momentous to feel the wind in your hair and be on a ship that is such a testament to American engineering and also America's desire for history and legend. The fact that we've preserved this vessel so diligently for its 235 years of its existence is just so American. <laughs> and you can still see and explore old Ironsides and really experience this incredible piece of functionally preserved history in the Charleston Navy Yard in Boston. I almost feel like you're selling me tickets right now. I am so submitting for the lottery to be on the ship when they <laughs> set sail this year. Because that is up for lottery every year. Well, uh, I think we should go see her. I think so. She's a beaut. She's a beaut. <laughs> <laughs> With her hull lift and everything. We hope you enjoyed our brief distraction. And to everyone out there but Mitch McConnell. Oh, and that one lawyer from the O.J. Simpson trial. Have a great night. Bye. Bye.